So 74,000 a year. 63,568. Yeah, 34.94 an hour for my W2 position, $55 an hour for my acute PRN position. Now I make $37 an hour. Um, that's after several raises. I am making $49 an hour for the 1099. Hello, I'm Megan Berg. And I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. And we're two SLPs on a mission to arm our colleagues with the knowledge they need to increase their pay and help elevate our field as a whole. Wage stagnation continues to be one of the major issues plaguing the field of SLP, and we are here to bring transparency around this issue. Each episode, we interview SLPs and ask direct questions about money so that all of us can use that information to better negotiate our salaries. If you're curious about what other SLPs make and want to know what you can do to make sure you don't get caught in the trap of never being paid what you're worth, this is the show for you. All right, so today we have um, somebody with us who is going by Marie choosing to remain anonymous today. Welcome, Marie. Thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. And in general, what we're going to be talking about today is all about get, being stuck as an SLP on the teacher pay scale and some of the discrepancies and differences between being an SLP stuck in that system versus an OT and PT. And then mm -hmm. also into some conversation around licensing and all of the licenses that are required. So first, Marie, can you tell us generally where you're located? Yep, I'm in um, southern Vermont. Okay, and how would you describe your race? Uh, white. And how would you describe your gender? Female. All right. And what setting do you work in? Uh, school setting. Okay. And how long have you been in SLP? Um, this is my 11th year. And have you been at that school the whole time or have you moved around? Nope. Um, I was in my previous district for six years before okay. coming to the one I'm in now. Six years. So you've been at the, your current job about five years? This is my fifth year, yeah. Okay. And how much do you make? I make 63000 568 um, and a $1,000 stipend for being nationally certified. Really? Yes. Um, it was in, so I am on a teacher contract and it had in the contract that teachers who are nationally board certified get a $1,000 stipend, um, but it didn't apply to SLPs. Um, <laughs> So funny. So, so like they're trying to like they're trying to cram SLPs into the teacher model, even to the point of like comparing a national board teacher certification to a CCC. Yes, and um, which when is I frustrating because like technically you don't even need your certificate of clinical competency. All you really need is your state license. But yeah, tell us right. your thoughts around. This. Um, so the previous district that I worked in, um, same thing. Um, the stipend was a few thousand dollars higher. Um, and through our union that we're in with the teachers, we were able to um, be added onto that. 
Uh, but w again, when I originally started there, it didn't apply to SLPs. Um, where I am now, um, I tried, um, we recently negotiated a year or two ago, but when I first started, it was a negotiation year and I brought it forward, um, and it got shot down. Um, so we tried again with, we wrote, um, a proposal. We included data on, um, the, the lack of SLPs that are around and how it's a high needs position and what other districts in Vermont were doing um, to support SLPs. Um, and we asked for a higher um, stipend, um, but they didn't go for that. And they included us, um, they decided to include us with the 1000 that the teachers received. So you really are stuck in the, in the teacher pay scale system. Yeah. Um, some districts, when we were doing our research, some districts around Vermont um, started, start their SLPs on the teacher pay scale, but in like the plus 45, master's plus 45 column to compensate um, for that. Um, other districts don't, one of them doesn't have the SLPs on the teacher pay scale, and I'm not really sure how. Um, so they are able to be offered a lot more money um, and other districts around here, two of them were going for a $10,000 stipend. I'm like, we need to keep up <laughs> with these guys or we're gonna lose, keep losing SLPs <laughs> to all these nearby districts. I have a question about that master's plus 45. So yes. master's, maybe plus, master's plus 30, I don't. I was gonna say master's, but so 45 or 30 more credit hours at a university. So is that how they're trying to compensate people with like SLPDs or PhDs? I don't think so. I think well, in those districts, just your SLP with a master's degree, they would start in that column to compensate for the differences between um, like our, our training, our education, um, Usually our master's programs have more credits than a teacher's master's degree program, at least in some of the research we did. Um, so I think instead of giving them a stipend like this district is doing, they just start them at a higher column. I see. And is the reason that you're stuck on the teacher pay scale because you're part of the teacher union? Yes. Um, I believe so. But ultimately, I think it's because we have a license through um, our agency of education, our AOE, um, because teachers do. They have the AOE license to work in a school. Um, but then you look at like OTs, PTs, um, psychologists, they don't have that to work in a school um, and they're not on the teacher pay scale. Okay. So, so I really that think is the, what is the AOE? Um, that's our agency of education. So a lot of states call it the Department of Education. In oh. Vermont, we call it the Agency of Education. And you have to have a license with the AOE to be a speech therapist in the school systems there. Not necessarily if you're going to work at a hospital or whatever. Okay, so licensing is new to speech pathology. And just for people listening for reference, like Colorado was the last state to implement state licensing. 
and that was when I graduated in 2015-ish, was around there. So license, state licensing is very new across the United States, and it's been kind of wedged in and like maybe not thoroughly thought through. So you're saying that the AOE was the, was the, the responsible standard. body for trying to regulate this in Vermont. Yeah. And then maybe about six, seven years ago, um, the Office of Professional Regulations, I'm not sure what it's called in other states, but that department who licenses OTs, PDs, PTs, social workers, psychologists, um, they decided that all SLPs in Vermont needed to be licensed through them. In um, addition to the AOE? In addition. Um, and I heard, I don't know if this is true, but the AOE didn't want to give us up because that's a chunk of money that they get, you know? Um, I don't know how true that is, but that's just what I heard through some people. So how much do you pay the AOE per year? Um, so my license is, it's every five years. Um, it's 300, 350. Okay. And then how much do you pay the state licensing board and how the often? OPR. Um, it's every two years. And I think it's like two fifty. And then you're paying two twenty five to ASHA every year. Yeah, our school district covers that though, which is nice. Okay. okay. But when you do the math, that's I don't know, like what around three hundred dollars a year on average that you're paying for licenses to three different yeah. organizations to somehow I mean, prove that you're able to do your job. And they all and need, they all have different continuing education requirements. Yes, <laughs> you have to crack that for each of them individually. And if they, if any one of them audits you, you have to direct, right. deal with them. Right. Um, for the AOE, we have to like input all like specifically each each one to get to the total. For the AOE, it's basically. I mean, for the OPR. It's if they audit you that you show it, but the AOE is very, they want all the details of everything you've done. It's very thorough. Um, okay. And then has there been any movement or conversation from SLPs in Vermont to get clarity or to get rid of one or the other? Yeah, our state association, um, um, I think they tried, you know, when the Office of Professional Regulations first came out I I think I'm not a hundred percent sure but we were trying to remove the AOE license um, to be more similar to OTs and PTs who work in Vermont in any setting um, not too much came of it there was a lot of I heard there's a lot of resistance from the agency of education in doing that um, so I think it's still something in our state association's radar, um, but just trying to find the best way to approach it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a, like a red tape bureaucratic yes. mess. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I guess, I mean, this is the value of state associations, but also state associations run into problems and challenges with turnover, like a lot of state associations have um, board members that serve for about a year. And like, that's just long enough to figure out what the heck's going on. <laughs> and then right. it goes to the next person. And so it's really hard for things to get 
done, especially when you're dealing with these very bureaucratic situations. Um, And then, so I'm curious because, I mean, as far as I'm aware, speech pathologists are, like, I think we all tend to believe that we need ASHA certification to do our jobs. And so we all pay for our C's because there's a lot of talk around, like, you can't bill for Medicare if you don't have your C's or your employer won't hire you if you don't have your C's. And there's all these things that haven't quite been proven, but they haven't been disproven. So we're all like hedging our bets and paying ASHA. But like um, occupational therapists, they they pay the NBCOT, right, for a national license. And then they also have a state license. But the NBCOT is separate from AOTA, their membership organization. And then physical therapists, they do not have a national license. They just have a state license. And that's kind of the more typical situation for doctors and lawyers and architects and nurses and pretty much like every other profession just has a state license. I think speech pathology is weird because there wasn't a state license for so long. And so ASHA was like, we're going to regulate it. And so the the national license came first, and then the state licenses came second, and it's created this mess for everybody. And now we're in this place where we're paying for all these different licenses, but do we're not really sure if we need any of them. Do you know in the state of Vermont, um, our physical therapists and occupational therapists, they're not facing this issue where they have multiple agencies that they have to pay. They just have the like the state licensing board basically yeah they just have the opr license they don't need um a license through our um, department of education to work in a school what do you think is the most ideal situation for regulating licenses should it be state should it be national should it be education should it be licensing board how do you think it should work i think I mean, coming from an SLP perspective who works in a school, I think, like, to me, it makes sense that SLPs just need to be, I think, I think it's important they're licensed in the state that they're working in, but I think just having the one, just one license through the, um, the state licensing board that also does the OTs, PTs, doctors, like you said, everybody else. Um, again, I'm not, now that I'm thinking about it, you know, we have our certification. So why do we need the license? Like if our certification has proven that we've met all of these skills, um, and have all of this knowledge and training, like, shouldn't that be enough? I guess. What's interesting is now there's this interstate compact So, so theoretically, someday soon, you could get to pay ASHA, you could get to pay the interstate compact, you could get to pay the AOE and the state licensing board that I keep forgetting the name of, you could get to pay four people. And I think this is why this conversation is so important is because as SLPs, we all have to be aware that like, this, this is um, a profiting 
thing for for governments or businesses or organizations like they are making money off of us and they're making money by regulating who gets to be an SLP or not and I, I didn't realize we need to stand up and and advocate for what it is we want but I don't think as a profession we even know what it is that we want right <laughs> I would agree with that and I didn't realize that the interstate compact would have a fee also um, in Vermont where it's currently in our legislature. We haven't passed it yet. We're working on it. Um, but I didn't realize that would be an additional fee on top of everything else. <laughs> and what will yeah. be interesting is if they tie the CCC into that, that will be like double paying, right? We'll be paying for the CCC and then we'll be paying for the privilege of being in the interstate compact. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, something for all of us to be keeping an eye on as they make these decisions. Uh, I know the episode is not about that in particular, but as we're thinking about all of these things that we have to pay for to be allowed to practice, um, certainly something we'll want to be advocating for as that interstate compact moves forward. It hasn't gone live yet, Um, but when it does, well, before it does, we'll, we'll need to be advocating that we're not wrapping up the CCC in that and, and becoming mm-hmm. further, um, further, further beholden. Thank you. <laughs> further <laughs> beholden by, uh, Asha. Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. We have many sponsors to thank for making this podcast possible. In the spirit of money transparency, we want you to know that each sponsor has contributed $250 for their ad spot. Half of this goes to our episode guests and the other half goes to Nishla in order to encourage students to listen in and gain the knowledge they need to negotiate their first SLP jobs. If you're an SLP, always on the lookout for engaging ways to practice auditory bombardment and speech articulation with your caseload. There's a fantastic set of picture books just for you. Phonological and articulation children's books not only target sounds based on articulatory placement, but they offer 120 to 500 repetitions of the targeted sounds in all word positions while telling a fun and interesting story. Partnered with beautiful full-page illustrations, phonological and articulation children's books also offer a variety of ways to work on expanding language concepts, listening or reading comprehension, and predicting and problem-solving. The popular book series has six different books, including Hawaii's favorite, Greg and his Gecko Go Kayaking, K and G Sounds, the beloved Stephanie's Spectacular Aquarium Visit, S Blends, and the adventurous Lily, Lana, and the Exploricorn, L and R Sounds. You can find these on Amazon. Um, Okay, so when you applied for your current job, there really was no negotiation. Nope. Um, I, then, I tried, of course, but um, yeah, I tried and he, our um, special director said that I, you know, we're on the teacher pay scale. So it's already set for us. Um, I didn't have any room despite like, you know, I sent out my points, <laughs> you know, and of why I think I should maybe start a few steps higher at least, you know, and um, he said there was no room for that. It is always good to ask, though. I know um, uh, one of my my first faculty positions as a professor was 
union. And so there was a scale, there were steps and um, they wanted to bring me in at step four, I think. So they were giving me credit for all of the teaching I had done while I was getting my PhD. And it was not a livable wage on the East Coast. And I remember we had a professor who talked to us a lot in grad school about negotiating. And he told us, anytime a union is involved, there is no room for negotiation. It will be what it will be. But I went ahead like you and I tried anyway. And I I used a point um, that I, I heard in my interview and held on to. We encourage our faculty to continue to work in the field. Um, so they bring relevancy to the classroom, but I, we wouldn't want you working your first year while you establish yourself as a professor. And so that was something I said to them, um, you know, you're not offering me a livable wage. And um, you told me in my interview that you wouldn't want me working PRN during my first year. And at this point, I would have to work X amount of hours. I, I had done the math, you know, I came prepared. Yeah. I would have to work X amount of hours on nights and weekends, even with my husband's income, for us to pay our rent and buy groceries and, and pay our bills. And so they asked, and I what I didn't do was my research on what those steps were. So typically these these pay scales are published, right? There it's you can get this information somewhere. So I, I should have looked and I, I gave her a number, which was actually in between, I think, step eight and nine. I, and so I said, I will need to make this amount of money for, for me to come work for you. <laughs> she actually bumped me to the higher step. So I think I got like brought in at step nine. Um, but I wish I would have done my research. So I knew what I was asking for. Um, but so you should still try like you did. You yeah. should still try because there was a union that oversaw that. And man, I went from step four to step nine in one conversation. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and I think it probably just depends on who's, who's doing the hiring, how strict they are, what the relationship is like and the dynamic with the union and if like how the hiring manager is able to justify moving up steps and all of that. So I guess you just never know. Yeah. And yeah, in grad school, I had a professor in our like professional issues class and she really like pushed the negotiating, you know, and she's like, the worst they can say is no. And so every job I've ever, that's stuck with me and every job or um, PRN work I've done, I've always asked and I've only been shut down a few times. Mm -hmm. Again, because of unions and <laughs> teacher pay scale and yeah. Trying to keep it. And I think, I mean, this there. is interesting too because there's a lot of talk. Like every time Ash's dues are coming around at the end of the year, or people get frustrated, it's like, we need to unionize. Like, we all need to unionize. And it's like this magical word. And I think what's interesting about unions is they're incredibly grassroots, they're very, very local. Like, it's, I mean, as yeah. far like, with my understanding, my limited understanding, it's very hard to do a national union because of all the state laws and regulations. And so they they tend to have to be really local. So you can make yeah. movement fairly quickly or as quickly as the union can make moves. Um, so then what tends to happen is SLPs join an existing union, whether that's the nurses union or the teachers union, because they're 
big and they're established and it's just easier. And so I don't know. It's interesting. I would love to learn more from any SLPs who have started a union that's strictly for SLPs. So if anybody's listening to this and has that experience, reach out to us because I'd love to. I would like to know too. (laughs) (laughs) Should they reach out to us at Megan? Yeah, they should. should I don't know the email at hello at other SLPs pockets.com. I'm just curious because I feel like Vermont is very similar to Montana where I live, where it's like this beautiful place and everybody wants to move here, but then people get here and like, there's, there's no jobs. There's very limited economy. It's yes. very rural. It's hard to get to a bigger city. It could take a couple days drive. <laughs> so like, <laughs> tell us about, um, let's see, what are the questions? Oh yeah. What are people paying? What is Target's sort of starting rate or a similar type store in your area? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to give you a few different numbers just because like you said, everything is very spaced out. Um, so the closest Target to me is 30 minutes away in New Hampshire, actually. Um, and they start at 16 an hour. The mm-hmm. one Target that is in Vermont, which is two or three hours north of me, is seventeen fifty an hour. Okay. And then what how much is a gallon of gas at your closest gas station? Uh three dollars seventy-nine cents. Okay. And then how much is a two bedroom house that you would want to move into that's not a fixer upper, that's not like the highest end, but something that's available. Um, that's not a fixer upper. I would say either close to 200,000 or higher. Okay. Um, we just bought a house a month ago um, and it's technically three bedrooms, but it's really like two. Um, mm-hmm. And it was um, in the one seventies, but it is a fixer upper. There are things that we need to do. Um, mm-hmm. But when I was looking on Zillow to prepare for this, um, yeah, a lot of them are in the like high one hundreds or 200s and higher, depending on mm-hmm. location and how much land and all those things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you know, I know it's been a while. Do you know how much you paid for grad school? I don't. So I had, I forget what the word is called, but I had a job on campus that waived tuition. Um, but I did still have to take out loans for like living. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know how much total I'm going to say it was over 70,000 because I just had the remaining of my loans forgiven actually a few days ago through the PSLF and that was 67,000. So I'm imagining that it was, you know, I've been paying since 2012 when I graduated. So Just in case people don't know, can you tell us what PSLF is? Yep. So it's a public service loan forgiveness program. Um, And if you work at a qualified employer um, in public service, like a a school or a nonprofit, libraries, um, you can apply for the program and you have to be on an income-based repayment plan. And if you make 120 monthly payments, um, you submit the form and your loans are forgiven for working in public service. 
And every year you have to submit an employment certification form just to prove that you're still working um, with a qualified employer. And that's interesting because because it is payment or income driven as far as your payments. It's kind of one of those things where you have to do the math to figure out like what's your payment at this salary. And because a lot of people end up paying off the loan right in that 10 year time frame. (laughs) it could have been forgiven. So it's like, you don't want to get paid too much. (laughs) Right. Um, Yes. (laughs) That's, um, I've thought about that. And, you know, sometimes the payments are still high. Like I, I would say a year before COVID hit and they paused everything. I think I was paying close to like 700 a month. And I, looking back, I just, I don't know how. And then right before COVID, I re- submitted and it was able to bump down to like high 300s. Um, I'm not sure what changed. My husband's jobs have been, he he works seasonal jobs. So maybe we submitted during like a lower time, but um, then the pause came and then I hit 120 in January and they were just taken off my account a few days ago. (laughs) And I know a lot of people, Oh, go ahead. Sorry, 700 a month made my heart palpate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, I, I'm just saying a lot of people um, struggle to figure out the exact requirements to qualify for that. And so that can be a challenge too. People think they're working at a hospital. And so they think that that's public service, but most hospitals are for profit at this point. Yeah. So those don't qualify. So there's a lot of details it feels like to keep track of. And I feel like a lot of people think they're going to qualify for that don't, or like I said, they end up paying it off before they. Um, yeah. Or they just fill something out wrong on the form, you know, and they didn't know. And th- there are so many stories like that. The waiver helped that they released during COVID. I think that helped for a lot of people. Do you know what other SLPs in your area make? Or have you like, have you had those conversations with colleagues or is everybody kind of like hush hush about it? Um, I, I don't know too many SLPs in the area still since we just moved down here a few years ago. But, you know, I've, when we wrote the proposal, I was looking at all the different, trying to find the different pay scales. Um, and there are some that are definitely higher than ours. Um, there's a local district, like I said, who doesn't have their teachers on, I mean, their SLPs on the teacher pay scale. Um, Were you I able would, to find the the SLP pay scale? Like, do they have a similar step program just for SLPs? No. you. So I interviewed with them, actually, when we were moving down here. Um, and the reason I didn't take the position, even though it offered a lot more money, um, was because where I am now, I would just be in one building (coughs) with my own office. Um, and I, I did the traveling thing when I worked in a different district, going to all the schools and it was just very mentally exhausting. Um, so I wanted to, are you comfortable sharing that? What was the question? I missed it. What did they offer you? They offered me, so she asked me what I was thinking. Um, and I said, 69. 
And she said, and this was a few years ago. Yep. And she said, yep, that's pretty close to what she was thinking also. Um, And then I'm assuming it would, I guess I don't know, it would go up a little bit every year, but the fact that, you know, we could decide together where we would start, where I would start on the pay scale. Um, when they told me they didn't have a teacher pay scale for SLPs, my jaw dropped to the floor. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know how they made that happen. I don't know. I want to jump in there when she asked um, what you wanted to make when she left the ball in your court. Um, I may say this on other episodes, so you may keep hearing it from me, but a good way you gave her one number and that was fine. But a good way to answer that question is to say, I am interviewing for jobs that pay between X amount of dollars and X amount of dollars. So if you wanted 69, I would have been like, I'm interviewing for jobs that pay between 69 and 73,000 or something like that. Um, Giving the range and certainly going higher than what you want, because most times they're going to offer you less than the top. Um, But that's as you're, as people are looking for jobs, um, they really shouldn't be throwing it in our court. Right. Because that's a, I feel like that's a trick sometimes. Like I could pay you up to 75, but if you're only asking for 69, then that's what we'll pay you. Right. Um, So that's always a good way to answer that question in an interview situation is to give a range and and make what you would like to make towards the bottom of that range. And I I went on a rant a couple episodes ago. Can I continue my rant a little bit? Is that okay? About negotiation? Yes. (laughs) Because there's this idea that it's a business transaction and it's perfectly fine to for for companies to to open it up with what is what number are you looking for so they can ask you that kind of cold question but i would argue in a field of mostly women like in a society that conditions women to not speak up for what they want or be clear about what they need and just be nice and go with the flow and don't ruffle any feathers. Like women are in particular, they're in a different difficult situation to then have to advocate for themselves very strongly from the get go at the beginning of a job relationship. And so that's why I think it's so important for this legislation that's coming out that um, employers have to list their budget for the position. And they're the ones that have to be open first um, because I think it gives everybody, not just people who have been conditioned <laughs> to openly say what they want and need and feel rewarded for it to then be successful in negotiation tactics. I think negotiation is important. I don't think we should just get rid of it, um, but I don't think the onus is on the applicant to start that conversation. Yeah, I I agree. It feels very uncomfortable and a little awkward, you know, and what, what am I worth? What are my skills worth? And it's hard to put a a number on that. And really the only way that you can follow Jeanette's advice 
is to ask other SLPs in your area what they're making. And even that's a difficult conversation. And like if you're in your position where you've just moved to a new place and you don't know anybody and it's a rural area and there's just not that many SLPs, like it's really hard to get that number. But if you are in a position where you just have to be the first one to give that range, um, maybe giving, giving the range and then also providing the data or like providing some context of where you got that number, I think would be helpful. Mm-hmm. And we will be to help alleviate that a little bit. We've said this in other episodes, but we will be linking up um, some of those published lists that people have pulled together of ranges and um, places that people have worked and years of experience. We'll, we'll be linking that stuff up um, in our show notes and through our social media and uh, that way we can have that available, a, a place where people can see all of those resources in one place. And we'll also have a Google Drive going where people can contribute as well. So we have our own. That would be great. Um, okay. So you said that you specifically took a job um, because of the, the single building and having yes. your own office. What is your caseload size right now? Right now I have, so I'm only case managing one student, um, but the number of kids who receive services at my school, it's... I'm sorry, case managing is like you are coordinating the IEP meetings and... Yes, and I write the IEP for them. Yep. Um, so this would be a kiddo who's speech only or has speech as their primary diagnosis? Um speech only. So he, he, yes, he doesn't receive any academics, mm-hmm. um, but gets some related services. Um, so okay. I just have one this year. Last year I had three, um, but they've moved on to the next school. Um, but for the number of kids who see, who see us for services in my school, um, like 57, 58, we're only a three grade school. Um, Does your state have caseload caps? No caseload caps. I wish they did. Um, it's skyrocketed over the past couple of years. Um, so that number includes um, IEP kids, but also a few 504 students and a few intervention students through the MTSS process. Okay. And then do you have the opportunity to make more money like through extended summer year? Is that what it's called, ESY, or any other yes. opportunity? Yep, um, through ESY. Um, so I usually volunteer to work ESY. Um, and then there's the the district has like different committees at each school for either a per diem rate or a stipend, but they're usually more um, like curriculum based and don't really apply to, you know, what we do. Um, okay. So I would if say you- ESY is the big one. If you were to invest in certifications, would your pay go up? Nope. So I know you, we mentioned the, the degree plus years, uh-huh. graduate school credits. Um, do you still have the opportunity for that or are you maxed oh, yeah. out? Nope. Um, I still have the opportunity for that. And if the certification did involve like actual grad school type classes, 
you know, that would move me up. Um, but if it was just, I needed an X number of CEUs to get the certification, um, I wouldn't, it wouldn't increase my pay in any way. I think the return on investment there's um, good to look at too, because, you know, paying for grad school credits is not cheap. However, I know that there are programs and certifications out there. People do offer, um, offer CEUs where you can get grad credit. So I know when I was in the school, we did have, um, I don't, I don't know how this was arranged, but I remember going to a very specific conference for the schools um, in our state, and we could pay extra to have the credit hours or the the CEU hours that we did at that conference. We could have them registered as grad credits through a local university. We had to pay extra for that, but there was an opportunity. So um, that's a good strategy if people are in the field looking for ways to make extra money. If if the return on investment and in paying extra for those things or the opportunities are there or seeking out the CEUs where you can add that on, um, it's probably a good idea if you know, if you're three years away from retirement, maybe that's not the best idea. But if you're a new clinician, um, in the long run, the return on investment really could be there. Yeah. Actually, a couple of trainings I did this year offered that. Um, and you had to write like a, a paper or make an outline, a lesson plan, you know, a little bit of extra work, but not, not a lot. Um, so I did get some credits. Can we put a plug work. in for the Credits Institute who might be a sponsor? That's, for that's yeah, who I was talking about, actually. I was thinking about AC Goldberg and the Credit Institute. I know um, that through the Credit Institute, you can get grad credits. Yeah, that, that was front of mind as I was saying all of that. They offer confronting anti-Black racism in communication sciences and disorders and intersectional cultural responsiveness um, and the Trans Voice Elective. They have some really, really great offerings, and I know you can get university credit. Oh, awesome. So what do you think you should be paid? Do you think your current salary is fair, or, or do you think you should be paid more? Um, I think I should be paid in um, at least 10000 more. So that would take you up to what? Uh, it would take me to like 73, 74. Um, I just feel like that's, yeah. And um, what about the PTO situation in your school? Do you have, I know teachers typically will have pretty generous sick time that can accrue and roll over. Is that the case for you that you would get paid out at retirement or how does all that work? Yep. Um, so we get a set number of days every year um, and it rolls over until the next year if we don't use it all. Um, and then when we um, yeah, retire, we can turn it in for a set dollar amount per day. Um, what I've learned recently is that some districts, like if you're not retiring, but you're just shifting districts, um, some districts will let you turn in those days for that daily rate and other districts won't. You just lose the days. Um, so I learned that recently. What about personal days? How many personal days do you get a year? Um, so in my district, it's all rolled into one. Um, okay. So it's just PTO, not sick time, personal time. It's just one set right. amount of hours. That's right. nice. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. 
when I was in the schools, we got three personal days and then a, a bunch of sick days. I feel like it was a lot um, compared to what I get right now as a professor, which is nothing. There's no sick time, wow. no personal time on an, a nine month contract, but you know, you just work it out with your chair and they can be very generous. Um, so there's that, but yeah, there's, I work for a private university and there's, there's no time with a nine month contract. Have you ever thought about, um, being a contractor with the schools? Yeah. Um, if, if I'm being honest, I stayed in the schools because of PSLF. Um, the, the, the program. Um, but I feel like I kind of, and, and I like working with kids more than I do adults. Um, so I've thought that, you know, contracting through the schools in the future, um, I'd like to own my own private practice someday, working with kids. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's those student loans. I, <laughs> Do you work for the school directly now or do you work for something else? I know where I live, we have the educational service centers that service, you know, the schools in the county that want to contract or just over the border in Pennsylvania where I work, they're called um, intermediate units, IUs. So lots of states have those things. And when I worked, I worked for the educational service center. Um, So I didn't work directly for the district that I was placed in. Mm -hmm. So which, how, direct? I don't think Vermont has anything like that. Okay. Um, so I work directly for the district. I know when um, we need SLPs or we're looking for OTs, they'll contract out with um, like travel companies like Saliant Health. Um, that's actually how I started um, first out of grad school is covering a maternity leave in a school. And then after that was done, they hired me directly. Okay. Um, so with the schools for people for our medical SLPs, um, the things like the educational service centers or the intermediate units, those those function almost like a contract therapy company in a healthcare setting. It's more specifically like nursing homes. People will get hired through CTCs or contract therapy companies that service the nursing homes. Um, these are um, state governed um, offices that then contract out to the schools. And so the schools aren't required to use them, um, but many do, at least where I live. But again, it's it's a way to, as she's asking about contracting directly with the schools and we're thinking about how to increase our own pay, um, you know, skipping that middleman and working directly for the school is a great idea, or if you can be your own contractor. But then, of course, you become your own business owner, and, and some people just don't have the desire to do that. But, you know, seeking a job where you are working directly for the school may increase your paycheck um, because there's not money going to the middleman. Right. Yeah. Would you, or have you taken a lower rate to work with a specific population or because there aren't many opportunities in a particular area? Does that make Um, sense? It does. Overall, no, I would say when I think about where I am now and the other district that I interviewed with, yes, I did take a lower rate in comparison. Um, It wasn't in comparison. It was a lot lower, Um, but to where I was working before in that district, it wasn't, it was about the same. Um, 
but I just, for my mental health, I needed to be in one building <laughs> and not traveling around to three or four buildings every day. It's exhausting. Like you wouldn't think it's like, oh, you're just driving to a different building, but that's not the issue. It's that everything yeah. is done differently at every building <laughs> and you have yeah. to have relationships with all these different groups of people. And you don't have like a set spot to work in and yeah. it's rough on the car, especially in the winter. <laughs> As a medical SLP, I love being a road warrior. So I, my experience is opposite. I loved traveling between buildings. Um, as part of the negotiation, though, you are paying me my full PRN rate and mileage for me to put my big toe into the car door. Um, so that for many years that I'm going to joke here, that's how I've made my millions. Um, you know, I, during COVID there was, my company was paying me sometimes to drive three and a half hours to go see three patients in a building and drive three and a half hours home. So I was getting paid seven hours of the PRN rate plus the mileage to go see 90 minutes of patients. Um, but I, you know, you pop in a podcast or you talk to people on the phone or you listen to a book like with little kids at home that is so relaxing to me. It's, you know, there's, there's something to it, but I think, you know, it just not, it's not for everybody, but I, I love hopping in the car and going wherever as, as long as I'm being paid, I would never do it for free. And I don't play the game of, Oh, we don't, we don't reimburse the first 30 minutes. Um, you do for me. And especially because I know I'm the only one in this company who's going to say yes to that. You're going to pay every mile. The first 30 minutes. What's that, Megan? That's like a thing. Like that's how they get out of paying if you have to drive 24 minutes. Some companies, because like what I've heard our regional manager say is, well, you would drive that far to work. Yeah. Not me. I'm, I'm PRN. I'm not driving anywhere to work. <laughs> I should have. I should have embodied my energy and negotiated that. I worked for a company where they would pay for one leg of the journey, but not the other. Cause they were like, mm -hmm. you would, you would drive that to work anyway. No, yeah. not when there's nursing homes four minutes down the road yeah. and everybody needs a person, right? Like, no, I'll just find another company to pay me. <laughs> no, I don't do it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Okay, our last question is, what advice do you have for other SLPs when it comes to applying for jobs and negotiating salary? Um, I would say do some research, you know, um, see what other rates are in the area, but definitely negotiate, like definitely try. Um, the worst they can say is no, and you're at least getting whatever it is they offer you. But if they say yes, then you get more. Um, so it's always worth trying, and I don't think it's anything to feel intimidated by. Um, you just got to do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think one so, of the big takeaways from this conversation is as SLPs, we need to be aware of the different organizations and companies that are requiring money from us to practice and uniting together to figure out collectively what is it that we're all okay with and how are we going to fight for that? Yeah. So a little housekeeping before we wrap up. Um, I don't know if you were aware, but we do have sponsorship for these episodes. Um, our sponsorship is split 
directly down the middle. So you're going to get half to compensate you for your time. And the other half is going to go to the NISLA chapter of your choice so we can support our SLP to bees. Do you have a chapter in mind that you would like us to send that money to? Yeah, um, the one at Clarion. Yeah, okay. Yay, Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> so uh, so that's that's great. So we'll arrange that. And then the final thing that we do every episode is I give a negotiation tip. So my negotiation tip for today is to factor in perks and benefits. You don't always just need to look at the dollar amount and say, this is what I'm being offered. You need, uh, I see this a lot with my students too. They come and say, what do you think about this? And I say, I want to see the 401k plan. I want to know about the matching and not just the matching, but the vesting schedule. So vesting means um, how much time until the money that you're getting through a match is yours to keep. So typically the vesting schedule will like be two or three years and you get to keep 25% or 50%. And then a few more years, you get a higher percentage. And then by like five or six or seven or 10 years, then you get to keep 100%. And for those of us who have been in the field for a while, we all know we kind of change jobs because right now we're in an environment where often the only way for us to get raises is to job hop, which is unfortunate. Um, so keeping in mind that vesting schedule, it's, I know it's hard to predict out, but um, if they have a big vesting schedule, a long vesting schedule, it's very unlikely that you're going to get all of that money. But that's free money. That's part of your package. Um, looking at PTO, the paid time off, the sick leave, what rolls over, how much of it rolls over. If you're able to um, talk to current employees to see, do are they given a hard time when they need to take time off? Because if if you have two weeks of sick time, but then they put you through the ringer when you try to use it, that's not a benefit. Um, and, and then make sure if you take that job that you are using up every single minute of PTO or sick time or whatever that doesn't roll over. Um, be looking at the types of vacations that you get. Do you have to use your PTO during vacations or is the, are those bonus days or are there floating holidays? So maybe they're open on the 4th of July, but you get a floating holiday where you can use that holiday on a different day if you have to work a holiday. And then do you get time and a half if you're working on a holiday. These are all things that you need to ask when you are being offered a job and they are things that you can negotiate for potentially. Um, not always, you know, you're not going to be able to change a vesting schedule, but um, these, these are things that you can ask for when you are negotiating and you really should consider as part of the bigger package because just because you get a couple thousand dollars more, that match and that PTO could be a higher value. It, you're just not seeing that directly on your paycheck from week to week. So that's my tip for this week. Um, look at the whole package. Look at the whole package, pa factor in those perks and benefits. Awesome. Thank you, Jeanette. And thank you, Marie, for being here and being transparent and bringing all this fabulous information to SLPs in a public way. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Next time on Other SLPs Pockets. It's hounded into us for salary. So, you, the culture. As long as 
yeah, it's a call. You stay as long as you need to do to get the work done. But the reality but, but the, is you can't unless you're documenting with your patients in front of you and then they're getting right. less therapy. Somebody suffers, but not the administrators. Correct. If you like this podcast, please be sure to share it with your SLP friends and continue the dialogue together. The more of us that are having these types of open conversations, the more likely it is that we're all going to be paid what we're worth. If you would like to connect with Jeanette and me, you can reach us via email at hello at otherslpspockets.com. You can also find us on Instagram at otherslpspockets. Thank you.